Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. How lovely to meet you today, Tony. I must say that I feel like I know you having read your book and having read your book twice for different purposes. <laughs> but how, how lovely to really meet you in person. Um, so, Tony, um, t- start us off by telling us a little bit about the book and then I'll start to interrogate you as cognitive psychologists do in my own special way. Yes, so... Um... The book uh, really wanted to give voice to the black uh, British female Christian perspective um, into uh, issues of race and faith. And obviously the book title is God is not a white man. Um, And there is a part of the book, a significant part of the book, which is about literal depictions of God, as we've seen over centuries, as white um, and male. But it also uh, talks about... um, the problems of white supremacy and patriarchy in general and how that's pervasive both um, in the church and in theology, but also in um, other other parts uh, of of society, including um, international development, uh, the sector in which I work, um, interracial relationships I write about, um, uh, my my marriage to my husband, um, depictions of Africa, um, as well as church and kind of the the feminism as well. it um, it talks about or explores the question of whether or not God is a white man, but also part of the um, there's a, an intended double meaning, which is a God is not a white man, but also white men, as in white supremacy and patriarchy, um, white men are not gods, so white men um, aren't uh, the the default human. But I wonder if you want me to read a section that gives us a kind of uh, introduction into. Um, the kind of point of view that I'm writing from, and it's from the preface. Um, and I start by talking about my um, how I studied theology at Cambridge. And uh, I went to Cambridge wanting to be a journalist, um, but studied theology. Um, but uh, but my um, lecturer told me that I wrote like a journalist, and that wasn't a, a positive thing. So let me read here. Like the journalist I wanted to be, I had attempted to take myself out of the story achieving in my essays the goal of being that objective writer, a faceless observer. I had presented few of my own thoughts, feeling them to be unimportant and potentially distracting in writing academic essays about the nature of God. I have spent much of my life continuing to do this, making myself smaller, accommodating the expectations of how others want the world to be. While patriarchal influences draw a box in which women must sit and conform, White supremacy quietens the unique voice of the black experience. There is not room for both. Perhaps I should have listened much earlier to the lesson that my Cambridge supervisor taught me, that my voice matters, not merely in the social justice or political sense, but because when it comes to theology, the personal account is just as important as the historic, academic or intellectual. In the same way, my life experiences also matter. We are part of the story. This is arguably more true of theological explorations than it is of any others. Since God cannot be seen or touched in a physical sense, we can only experience God spiritually in our inner beings, and our experience of God can then only be relayed through our words, our speech, 
a translation exercise taking place in which communicating our experience of God cannot escape being shaped by our histories, our social contexts, our genders, our racial backgrounds, our individual stories. How can God be revealed except through the variety of different personal stories, physical realities, and cultural contexts in which humans experience God's presence? A 17th century philosopher, John Locke wrote, God, when he makes the prophet, does not unmake the man. Thank you for that. Now, I know you have already answered this, but I'm going to push this further. And as you know, I spend a lot of time um, on Twitter, as you, as do you, I think. Yes. Uh, but I often, it has become almost a, a stressed reaction. Whenever I hear something, I always think, what will uh, Anglican Twitter say about this? Or or even what will right-wing Twitter say about this? What will be the pushback? So if I pushed you back saying nobody actually believes that God is a white man, so why even go there? What is the reason? What is the point? I know you've touched on this, but can we first start with, with the man part of it? What does it mean um, to have a gendered God or, or have a, a, a gendered expression of God. Um, so as a cognitive psychologist, for an example, um, um, research suggests, uh, Lira Boroditsky's uh, research suggests that um, languages that have a, um, a grammatical gender um, that that has a, a nominative gender for, you know, if, so if you, if you talk about the sun or the moon, if there's a nominative gender, the way they describe the sun or the moon would be different. So German speakers where the moon is, is uh, feminine uh, would use very feminine metaphors in describing the moon, whereas Spanish speakers where uh, the moon is masculine, they'd have very masculine ways of describing this enormous amounts of linguistic evidence to say this but will you tell us what that means in in a theological framework what does it mean to to or even a journalistic um you know media analysis framework what does it mean to gender god yes so one of the things that i have been increasingly aware of is the importance of translation um biblical translation and the effect that that has on how we see God or um, our place in the world. I think if we are to look back at the original text in which it, the original Hebrew, for example, in which the Old Testament is written, there are um, there are masculine um, ways of describing God, and there are feminine ways of describing God, and there are neutral ways of describing God. Um, however, in the transla translation exercises that have gone on over the centuries, um, but I, written uh, translated by white men um, who have translated the Bible through the patriarchal context and uh, in which they have found themselves. And um, we have lost that sense of God as being um, neither male nor female or both. Um, um, and we have reduced God to male pronouns. And one of the things that I do in my book is uh, I don't use any male pronouns to describe God. And that was a deliberate exercise. And it's not something that I had naturally done. Um, and that's because of, you know, 37 years of describing God as he. But I felt it was really important um, in writing a book that was called God is Not a White Man um, to practice that exercise of describing God as God, not as he. So, so there is that. I would say, however, I have been, um, I wouldn't say surprised, but that kind of question around right-wing Twitter um, and lots of the media that I've been doing over the past few weeks, um, some people do think that God is a white man. 
um, some people do think that Jesus is a white man. So some of the responses that I get sometimes, and um, I wrote a piece in the Times last week, which it was called, um, the church needs to get rid of its white Jesus problem. Um, and I had lots of people on Twitter basically criticising me, saying that I was playing into some kind of woke agenda to rewrite history, um, as if my saying that Jesus was uh, not a white man, not a white person, was like casting a black man as Bond or black people in Shakespeare, as if I'm trying to make things politically correct. Obviously, we realise, we know that um, Jesus was um, a Middle Eastern Jewish person, so he was not a white European, um, but but I think a lot of um, people in the UK. I think we. I think obviously not theologians or people who are active in church. Think that think that Jesus was white. Think that the Bible was full of white people, and that Christianity is about Christendom and about Englishness and Christ, Christianity being um, Britain's gift to the world, to the savages. So, yeah, people do actually people do actually think that, but whether or not they do think that. I think we can say intellectually we know uh, that God is not a man and that God is not white. But if you walk into any cathedral um, in the UK or if you ask someone to um, picture God, including myself, um, I picture a white man. And that's because of you know, you know, centuries of images that have portrayed God as such. You are right. You know, I often say that oh, nobody actually believes God is a white man. But then I, I you know, um, um, when I taught a little theology at uh, Birmingham University, one of the modules we did, um, um, we we did a section on British Israel, Israelism, which which looks at or you know, which is a one would say a heresy that believes that uh, the the twelve tribes are actually all European, white European tribes. So there are these glorious spaces that that do believe you know, that kind of literary truth. But again, to go back to gender, um, I pray because uh, I was I was lucky enough to have a wonderfully um, supportive father who, who embodied the best of maternal and paternal um, attributes. I am most comfortable praying God, my father, or our father. Now, this is not true for everyone. Do you think that it has a particular uh, impact on the human psyche? Not to make you a psychologist, but you know, we psychologists apparently always ask about our relationships with our fathers and mothers. Does it? Do you think that it has an impact on people um, to to pray God the Father or God the Mother? Does it? Do you think that uh, that shapes our relationship with the divine in any way? Yeah, I, I think it, it must do. Um, I'm fortunate to have had a very close relationship with both my mother and my father. Um, so uh, I, when I pray God the Father, it doesn't mean something negative to me. It doesn't kind of evoke um, a negative imagery. Um, however, I think when, what we do when we pray only God the Father, exclusively God the Father, um, is potentially we lose um, something of the bigness, the vastness of God, and we lose um, lose kind of various different um, interpretations interpretations of who God is. So, um, Dr. Will Gaffney talked about a particular um, passage in the Old Testament which describes um, the mother love of God, and and so I think it's almost like potentially whether or not you have had that um, positive relationship with your parents. 
I think we all have an understanding of what that mother love should be or the kind of ideal sense of mother love as um, nurture and care. One of the things that I think is problematic in the alignment of God with maleness and masculinity, um, I think is one of the reasons why um, we have seen the alignment of Christianity with nationalism or let's say um, Trump's uh, evangelicals, Trump supporters, who um, are very much um, about uh, Christianity, but their view of God and their view of Jesus is this macho guy who is about power, who wins, who wants to fight, is about battle. And I don't think that they would have this, I guess, understanding or desire to see the other side, the other positive sides of God um, in the feminine. And, And I think, so, so I think there's, there's power in expanding our views and our language around God as both um, father and mother and other. I quite like that, father, mother and other. And you speak so fondly about your father. My father died um, about three years ago, four years ago, uh, yesterday. Uh, And uh, when you when I was reading the bits about, you know, sort of you reminiscing what it meant for your father, for you to go to Cambridge, I I was thinking about my father who went to such vast lengths to ensure that I was extraordinarily comfortable and scaffolded at university. And it reminded me what, you know, how he felt and or how he um you know, sort of walked the campus with me. And 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 I just thought there is in those relational um sort of the relationship we ships we have with our parents, but also our familial close-knit community is often a a way that we experience or, or we we see a reflection of God. And and I suppose uh, you do that beautifully in the book. Tell me a little bit at the risk of again sounding like a, a psychologist. Um, tell me a bit a little bit about the maternal. You know, I I was really aware that you've woven so beautifully the maternal and the paternal in the book but tell me a little bit about that maternal presence and you know you talked about uh, the patriarchal system being about power um but you know the the christology and certainly um the gospels um particularly show us the vulnerability of god um the the sort of openness to hurt and pain for our sakes. Tell us a little bit of, of how you wove that. I, I, I loved the Christology in the book that came through between the maternal and the paternal. Tell us a little bit about your mother and how she weaves into that. <laughs> so um, in the chapter, which is on um, sisterhood, uh, basically womanism, um, black femininity and uh, white feminism, I explore um, or I tell a story about my great grandmother um, and uh, how, I can't remember when it was, maybe 1940-ish, um, my, my grandmother and her brother were at school and there was a some kind of accident that happened um, and some kind of mud blocks uh, like fell into the school and my great grandmother had been looking for my um, grandmother and uh, her brother and she was in the market. And when she heard about the accident at the school, um, she miscarried her baby. And I think I only met my great-grandmother once when I was very young, once or twice. But that story really connected me to her in the sense that what it means to be a woman um, or 
the physicality of womanhood um, and the connection that I feel to women and um, both black women and other uh, women of other colors um, because there is something that um, holds us together. And I think um, I write about my particular relationship and my connection with black women and how we see in each other, um, actually we see each other in a world that often doesn't see us. And it's in those um, places of connection, I think, um, and relationship that we experience something of God. Um, and then I can you know, then kind of move on to thinking about James Cone's description of uh, Jesus um, in the cross and the lynching tree, uh, Jesus as being someone who uh, lays down the power and sides with the marginalised and oppressed and the brutalised. Um, and it's in that vulnerability that we that the beauty is found as well, um, and that we experience God in that place of suffering, um, rather than the place of power, greatness, success, winning, all those things that I think um, are problematic. Now, that actually perfectly segues into colour. So this book is predominantly, I would say, about colour or about racial identity. Um, tell us a little bit about what colour means. So um, traditional theology imagines the divine imprint on humanity, whether it consciously or unconsciously, as white. So for a moment, you know, uh, I know the, the, the title is God is not a white man, but let's look at a, a little about humanity conversely. What does it mean that when we imagine humanity, we first primarily imagine it in whiteness so um, for an example you know not very long ago even in our lifetimes um, uh, until in Australia until the 1976 Land Rights Act and until the Mabo decision was read in, uh, um, reached in 1992 you know when, when the myth of terra nullis was overturned um, Aboriginal people in Australia were legally classified under fauna and flora um, and, and theologians, psychologists, um, criminologists, sociologists often have in the in the last so many years talked about people who are uh, African, Afro-Caribbean, um, Asian, you know, however, however amorphous group that people are, are um, blocked into as being less or more criminal, less or more moral, less or more intelligent, less or more productive or hardworking. What does it mean to be the lesser human in the way academics and politicians and journalists um, represent us? Yes, and a large part of the book explores these questions of, a friend of mine described it as um, the idea that white people are the default human. Uh, and that idea is why we are still in the position that we are in today in terms of um, uh, racial injustice. So you can kind of go back to um, Linnaeus's classification of people from, you know, white at the top and to, you know, various different colours and then um, uh, Negroes at the bottom. Um, so for a long time, these ideas about black people and non-white people as other has been um, problematic. And one of the things that I draw out in the book is the very, very uncomfortable um, uh, reality that often it was the Bible or the Christian faith that was used to prop up these ideas. 
So I um, discovered a pamphlet uh, that was written in 1900 by a man called um, Charles Carroll, which was called um, The Negro a Beast or In the Image of God. So there are various um, theological debates about whether um, black people were made in the image of God and whether black people were actually humans or whether black people were animals. There were all these kinds of um, debates about at what point in history um, or at what point in the creation story what did black people come in? Were they, or did, did God create them or were they kind of like a, an accident? Um, and so there were various ways in which uh, blackness was seen as other and literally not made in the image of God. Now that runs through um, from centuries ago to um, the transatlantic slave trade through to um, even you know, the, the last century in, in a way that black people seen as lesser. And right up until today, or even um, the murder of George Floyd, you realize that um, in some ways, sorry, my son has walked into the room. In some ways, uh, black people continue to be seen as lesser um, than, um, than white ones. <laughs> I, I I I'm I'm particularly struck by um in in the in the the last century or two how language has been used to dehumanize um whether uh, whether it's people of color or um even sort of um in terms of other ways of of um we we disenfranchise and marginalize people you know what 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 um what lessons from history do you think we might draw um especially you know as a journalist you must know the power of dehumanizing people by uh, suggesting they are um bestial uh, suggesting they are you know um in some way uh, a threat to to that the the humanity the that that must be you know the the human race which is white Yes, um, I, I explore lots of um, instances throughout history in which you you, you see how um, how black people are seen as threats, and particularly black men are seen as threats to white women. So sometimes you see it at the root of um, the problems um, that have happened. Um, so, for example, a lot of the men that were lynched uh, in America in the mid twentieth century were lynched because they had either looked at white women in the wrong way. Um, there were riots in 1919 in the UK in which um, uh, there was this fear that um, of this, um, I guess, this mix, mixing of blood and mixing of races. You realise that it comes down to power and fear of losing power, um, uh, a fear of the so-called kind of dominant race um, losing out to to others uh, economically um, is, is a is a big is a big thing as well. So I realise that there are lots of um, lots of instances throughout history, but we could we continue to see have vestiges of those views, um, and these views are uncomfortable. Um, and I think lots of people are surprised that you know there were these views uh, back then, but we need to face up to the fact that. You know, a lot of that continues till today. So how can we change the narratives around um, uh, black people actually being made in the image of God as equal, not lesser people who are then invited to the table, but as equal um, uh, in God's creation? 
Before we move on, I wanted I was going to read this passage, but I thought it might actually be better if you could read to us um, on page 119, if you can find it. Sorry, I should have given you a heads up. The, the nature of real conversations is that it, <laughs> um, under the section that says the mule of the world, will you, will you read to us uh, um, a little bit about what you say about, I'm particularly interested about what you say about the white gaze um, and beauty. Sure. So this is from the chapter and called The Sisterhood is Black and White. For centuries, we have not been seen. In times past, the white men arrived in the land of our ancestors and did not see us as human, as worthy of our own homes, cultures or dignity. Under the gaze of the white colonizers for whom power and dominion were the most important things, the denigration of Africans in every way was a logical consequence. The colonizers could not in any way concede power to these so-called new people groups. So at every turn, they chose to show how Africans were lesser in intellect, in beauty, in form and in spirituality. It is this perceived proximity to animals that made it easier to exploit black bodies, to enslave them, to make white nations rich from the physical toil black bodies faced. For black women, the mule of the world, as the hero of Zora Neale Hurston's 1937 book, Their Eyes Were Watching God, describes them, there was an extra layer of denigration on top of the physical and emotional labour and exploitation. This idea that they would never be as lovely, pure or revered as white women. Black women were hypersexual but not beautiful, and that is an important distinction, journalist Afwa Hirsch writes in her important book, British. Beauty was in some respects the first racism. European chroniclers of Africa were keen to cast the African body as the darkness that contrasted to the light of whiteness, the supposed ugliness of its women as proof of the beauty and superiority of the white female form. Um, this particularly resonated with me, but particularly a concept at the risk of going to your first book, uh, going into the, the idea of beauty uh, and high culture. So in, in university spaces, um, if you took um, uh, a batch of students that might be studying art history or um, theology or philosophy, uh, they're more or uh, people of colour are less represented. There's an assumption that high culture is some, not something that we're interested in. And uh, as somebody um, who, who dwells in those spaces, um, why do you think, what are the gatekeeping mechanisms that keeps um, black scholars out of spaces that are, you know, in, in, in history, in archaeology, uh, in ballet, in opera, um, what what keeps them out, do you think? And do you think that it has anything to do with this this particular concept of beauty or or a love of beauty? Yeah, I think it's it it's about that whiteness as being the default, but also whiteness as aligned with goodness and beauty and intellect and and all the positives. Um, and the corollary of that is blackness as seen as um, uh, ugly. Um, lazy, um, stupid. Um, there are various quotes from lots of the theologians that I um, studied at university, um, kind of, uh, enlightenment theologians, about the place of black people um, and, and their kind of lack of intellect. So I think that is the reason why we still continue to see um, 
um, disparities in certain sectors of society between um, white white people and black people. So even if you look at sport or look at football, for example, where obviously there are lots and lots of black football black footballers, loads and loads. And obviously there's still racism um, on the pitch, but um, there is uh, there are lots of black footballers. However, there aren't, I think, um, any black managers of football teams because um, yes, you're obviously black people are good at sport. Um, they're they're, phys they're physical. Um, they're strong, um, but they're not very clever. So they therefore can't be managers. And you see that um, replicated across lots of different um, uh, areas of society. So I think um, there there is that. But I think there's also a when black people do enter into those spaces, they experience an othering or like they don't they don't belong there or people are surprised that they are there and um, so I write about my first night at Cambridge um, during matriculation dinner I sat next to an older um, white male fellow who um, when the dinner came around he looked down at my plate and he said well I bet you're not used to that this kind of food at home and it was kind of chicken and potatoes which I had had before and I immediately felt like oh I didn't belong there um, or people didn't think I should be there. So I think until we um, rewrite those narratives, until we you know, stop othering the black people who are in those spaces, um, we're going to continue to see black people potentially creating their own spaces um, in which their intellect is not questioned um, and their beauty isn't questioned. Do you know, that was one of the stories that really resonated with me again. Um, I was, a couple of years ago, I, um, um, I went on a walk in the, the, the sort of North Yorkshire moors and uh, I saw a butterfly and I thought, you shouldn't exist. You, you know, somewhere in my head, I think that, you know, this, this butterfly is supposed to be extinct. So I took a picture, I posted it on Twitter. I certainly didn't go out thinking I'm going to rediscover a butterfly. So this is a butterfly that, that is extinct in England. It's certainly, you know, it's around in Scotland and it was certainly... Um, uh, the sort of it has it's a re-emerged butterfly but um I came back to my community I was on in in a um at a sort of a retreat house and um somebody said to me a, a white clergyman actually said to me so it, it kind of took took a life of its own sort of people got very excited that this butterfly had re-emerged and people were saying that I had hadn't obviously hadn't discovered a butterfly but had rediscovered a butterfly and uh, uh this white clergyman said to me it's just you know i wish you came back to us and told us about this without putting it on social media it's just a bit odd when a foreigner finds one of our butterflies and i just thought what <laughs> and until that point i hadn't really considered myself having lived here for more than half my life hadn't really considered my foreignness I suppose not quite to the extent that I wasn't allowed to comment on the fauna and flora around me and uh then you know I had that comment again and again and again and I just thought you know in in various facets but sort of it it and I realized that even spaces of knowledge are gate you know that there, there are gatekeepers of ethnicity I found that extraordinary and coming from the university sector where that would be hilarious. I just thought, is this something particular about ecclesial spaces or, or churchy spaces? But that story again resonated because I asked, I get asked to make curry quite a bit from in ecclesial spaces. 
And until quite recently, I had no clue. <laughs> I, you know, and I, cooking was a, a, a more recently acquired skill. And I always think you know, there are lots of other skills I can offer. But moving on, I'm just very aware of the time. And we've dwelt on one particular section. And there's just so many questions I want to ask you that I want a couple of hours. But mm-hmm. Okay, let's let's look at um, this book and, and the way you might frame it. Tell me, so if you were putting this book on a bookshelf in the in you know in Birmingham University Library, Oxford or Cambridge Libraries, where would you put it? Would it be in the contextual theology section? Would it be practical theology, liberation theology? Um, you know, would it be lamentation literature? Would it, you put it next to Afwa Hirsch's uh, book or, or next to um, uh, Azariah Francis Williams or, or next to um, Robert Beckford's or, or, or Anthony Reddy's? Where does this book belong in a sh- on a shelf? Yes. Um... <laughs> um, I, I would love to be in between F.W. Hirsch's British and Will Gaffney's Womanist Midrash because I think um, I have recognised that what I have done is uh, womanist theology, which is theology through the lens of um, black women. But I think I, I don't want it to be pigeonholed into um, a theology book because I'm also talking about society it's a, in, in general and I've been really um, amazed and pleased that so many of uh, the people I know who aren't Christian um, have bought the book and are really interested in it because it really speaks to our times about um, about the place of black people about racial justice about black lives matter and what I want to do through them reading about those things is to understand um, that my view of God my understanding of Jesus and the Christian faith is about um, a faith that sides with um, the marginalised and the oppressed um, and that doesn't um, do a lot of things that people think the church does, which is wants to protect its own um, power and wants to kind of exclude people. I want to paint a picture of the Christian faith as um, completely inclusive and a God that is inclusive and open armed. So uh, I think um, a sociological commentary, but also womanist theology. That's that's exciting. What about those people who say, well, it doesn't belong in theology at all? You know, there, there is a sort of a particular kind of thinking that suggests that black theology is not proper theology. Black theology is is so focused on the human experience that it is um, not appropriately um, focused on the sacred. What would you say to those those commentators that said this doesn't belong in the, you know this or Anthony Reddy or, or Francis Azariah, um, Azariah Francis Wilson would none of those belong in the theology section? That's just lamentation literature. What do what would you say to them? What is the Christology or what is the eschatology or you know what what theological strains is most important to you in this book? So I would say it's it's liberation theology and eschatology because the the picture that I paint um, of the kingdom of God or the Christian faith is one in which um, at the end of all things um, we are all uh, called to be 
one, um, all made in the image of God. And that despite what, what we see, um, the oppression and marginalization of people groups um, in, in the now, in the not yet, there will be, uh, because of um, God's incarnation, death and resurrection, all those things will be brought together. Now, I, I find it frustrating when people might suggest or critique black theology, um, even the, I guess the concept of black theology as uh, as kind of um, separate from the default, which is white theology and white theology done um, by men um, of the 19th and 18th centuries predominantly. Um, that too was contextual. Um, theology has to be contextual because um, because we can't see and touch God. So therefore, um, it has to be contextual. But all of all theology is contextual, not just black theology. Um, I, I guess I understand what people might be saying when um, I think someone described it as theology done through tears. But I think um, I think Lamentations does exist in the Bible, and I think that we're not yet at the place where we can let go of that and move on as if uh, everything is sorted. So black theology is theology. Um, all theology um, is contextual. Now, I'm going to push you once more in two sentences. If you were, you know, if you deeply, deeply cared about somebody who is just completely resistant to this idea that this was real theology, how would you compel someone's heart? How would you compel them in, in you know, to the, to the beauty of black theology? What is it about black theology that makes it deeply Christological? So the central tenet of the Christian faith is God becoming nothing and coming into human form, being like us and going through um, the brutalization of his body in order um, to, um, to, in order for salvation and resurrection. And if that is the central theme of the Christian faith, then black theology that experiences um, um, God as with them, uh, Jesus is with us, um, and black theology as recognizing how God can be found um, and uh, aligned with um, a black man who has been lynched. Um, I think that has to be um, important for all of us to get a vision of, and um, not just black people. Um, and there are all sorts of kind of marginalized groups, all sorts of people who need to hear the message and um, that God is with them. Um, no matter what the situation is. A very long time ago, I considered studying um, journalism and uh, you can tell that I would have been made a very poor journalist because I want to spend a lot of time examining the one concept for a long time rather than running through. And as a result, I have about 20 questions I haven't asked you. But uh, let's go back to framing the book. Um, you have already talked about this in the book, but very quickly tell me, who are the forebearers of this book? Who are the, the sort of um, real influences? Uh, but also, will you tell me some unlikely conversation partners? So I often like to read books together. So if I read this, um, I'm, I'm likely to read a, a book alongside this that does push that sort of... Um, virtue aesthetics of whiteness and, and white superiority so that I might understand the tensions between and these two. And for me, then it brings through the, the, the real tensions of the human existence and the, the spaces in between that I should focus in. So who are the influencers and who are the conversation partners that might give us some 
alterity. So the influences, um, I think we, or I can and others might also fall into the trap of thinking that these conversations are new when they've been happening for years and years and years. And so, yeah, the people um, that have influenced my thinking um, include James Cone um, in the US, but also in the UK, uh, Anthony Reddy, Robert Beckford, people like Rosemary Mallet, people who have been talking about black liberation theology and its practical implications for the church for you know, since before I was born. So, so those would be um, people who have influenced me. Um, the unlikely um, uh, other books I'd want people to read alongside it, um, I'm not sure if this is uh, possible, but, uh, well, I think positively, um, two books that I would love to be in a, a conversation with would be um, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobes Dumais. Um, which charts the kind of alignment of um, American Christianity with masculinity and um, nationalism. And then a new book uh, by Beth Allison Barr called The Making of Biblical Womanhood, because I think there are so many themes that, um, you know, and those are two white women. Um, and I think that there is so much that resonates um, resonated with me in reading their work about, about history, um, about power and about um, biblical translation. So I'd love to be in a conversation with them. Um, but otherwise, you know, I'd love um, I'd love someone, you know, from the Southern Baptists to, to be in conversation with me and see how that see how that went. For me, the the real beauty and the real joy is to find those disagreements and then find why there are those disagreements. I often am less interested in what people say than in why people what they say what they say. And sometimes I find in my calling, uh, the calling is to understand those fears and anxieties and lull them in, 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 in um, uh, not even lull them, to respond to them with honesty and truth and pain and grief. Um, and I, I found that a lot, a lot of that coming through um, in your book and you know theology through tears is a particularly beautiful way of putting it uh, because the reality is there is that troop of angry angry black women we you know we have to keep our voices so calm and you know almost like a lullaby because anything less and we will be accused of being angry of being polemic of fragmenting society and i i just caught this beautiful thread this silver thread running through this book of being vulnerable in in our fears and our anxieties but at the same time showing beauty okay my final question to you is what are the learning curves in th this book and where would this book lead what, what what's the next book you might you might bring to the table i'm not sure i can i'm not sure if i can do it again um yeah, I wrote this book for a pandemic um, with a full-time job, with a toddler who kind of causes chaos sometimes. Um, if I was to, um, I think in writing the book, I realised that there are so many stories of black dignity that I didn't know about. So from the women, enslaved women who um, led revolts on slave ships to the Igbo women in southeast Nigeria, I'm from the Igbo ethnic group who led a revolt against um, white colonizers. I would love to dig into those kinds of stories and the kind of un untold stories of uh, black women's struggle and uh, kind of, yeah, the, 
yeah, not rather than being passive, the, the black women who kind of uh, go for it um, and question and don't um, stand for the status quo. And where I would like it to lead, um, the final chapter in the book, the first is around um, the kingdom of God as a mosaic. So how can we as the church um, comes this understanding of, of uh, the kingdom of God as like a mosaic? So there, the pieces aren't uniform, um, they're all different colours, they somehow fit together. And when you stand back, it, they look um, beautiful. So how can we recapture that image um, for the church? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.